three admission tickets to uh, Ocean Shores that um, I will give to the first three people or first person who needs three tickets if you uh, Facebook message me on our, our group page. Um, so with that being said, um, I know you, uh, you'll see occasionally stuff on our, our Facebook group page from Sasquatch Coffee. Uh, that is my, I am the founder of Sasquatch Coffee. Sasquatch Coffee also sponsors Monster X. So um, I try not to overdo it with uh, promoting the coffee on the page. But um, I do, there is a Facebook page uh, for Sasquatch Coffee. And if you want to buy Sasquatch Coffee, it's at www.squatchcoffee.com. So enough said about about that. Um, I'm excited to to uh, talk to our guest today, Chris Spencer, who is a Bigfoot researcher um, out of Washington State. Um, Chris is fairly new to Bigfoot research, but he has uh, is really active and goes out very regularly and uh, researches in a in the same area um, and has produced a lot of, uh, found some really interesting stuff. So um, that being said, I would like, I'm ready. Chris or Shane, you got anything else you want to talk about right now? I think uh, let's just bring Chris on. Uh, he's, I know he's got a lot to say and a lot to share and, and, and somebody I respect. I've gotten to know him over, you know, say the last year and a half. Um, and he's just a, a fantastic individual, really nice guy and is uh honest to all get out uh he makes no um outrageous claims and is a uh, you know you know doing his work out there uh, diligently and um honestly and that's all i can ask for i think that's all that anybody could really ask for and so no uh, let's uh let's bring him aboard hey chris this is gunner hey gunner hey gunner and i know shane's there with me here so how are you doing today buddy I'm doing good. And you were out this weekend, it sounded like you uh, posted that you had a little bit of audio mishap. Oh, yeah. I, uh, I'm i working in uh, Eastern Oregon right now, so I run home on the weekends and Saturdays I try to run up to my area and do an audio. And I was in a rush but yesterday, and when I dropped the audio off, I had... I, Turn the recorder on, and with the tax cam, you have to hit the record button twice. Well, I only hit it once, so my recorder sat out tonight in the rain on standby. That that sucks. I've done the exact same thing not too long ago, and it was it was uh, it was bad when uh, <laughs> went back because we had had some stuff on another one of the other recorders that picked up some interesting stuff, and we had hoped to have you know have it picked yeah. up on on both recorders, but uh, yeah, I had done the same thing and pushed, um, not pushed the start button twice. So um, you, we find, yeah. you know, that kind of stuff happens when you're out there in the field. Oh yeah. I, and I, you know, I just recently started using uh, multiple recorders and for whatever reason yesterday, I just decided to put one out partly because I wanted to get out of the rain. It's pretty stormy. So, um, yeah. Maybe it worked out for the better because there probably would have been much to record but rain and wind. <laughs> <laughs> and um, tell us a little bit about yourself. A lot of 
you know, you're pretty new to Bigfooting, relatively new. And, and uh, what, what got you interested and started? Because uh, you spent a lot of time out in the field. So what, what uh, brought uh, you into it? Well, I, I'm, I'm new to the whole uh, Bigfoot researching thing. Uh, I'm not new to the subject. I've, I grew up here in Washington State. I actually grew up in Longview. And um, basically, you know, I've had some weird stuff happen in life. And, uh, you know, my, the last couple years, some, uh, a profound thing happened with me and my son in 2013 when we were camping. And last year I just decided I had time. I decided to devote time to actually going out and looking for evidence or looking for these things. Um, you know, when I... I mean, it started when I was about six or seven. Me and my dad found some tracks up uh, by Packwood, Washington. Um, we had a cabin up there, and we were cutting wood for the cabin in early spring. And uh, my dad had stopped over at Clear Cut to take pictures of Packwood. And I got out, and there was a, a trackway up the side of the road that dove off down the side of the Clear Cut. And... They were big footprints with toes, and uh, I don't remember the details because I was pretty young. I just remember my dad's reaction, and I you know, I yelled at my dad, hey, dad, Bigfoot, and he came over and was like, well, it's, it's a hunter, and uh, I, being the kid I am, I just pointed out, well, he's hunting without shoes on, Dad, and his uh, after that, he was, like, getting the truck, and um, it actually, my dad's a huge skeptic about everything, and it, it noticeably disturbed him. Um, when he saw those tracks and, you know, after that, I, uh, didn't think much about it. Um, I went to WSU and, uh, spring of 92, I had a anthropology 101 class. Um, and one day I came in and there was this giant skull on the, my professor's counter. My professor was Grover Krantz and I had no idea who he was, um, uh-huh. but, he uh he devoted one lecture a semester, um, evidently, to the topic of Sasquatch and I happened to get to sit in on it. It was pretty cool. It was the same uh same year he came out with Big Footprints and basically the lecture was like an overview of what that book is. Um he covered uh you know, he was a physical anthropologist. He he uh, his expertise was in bipedal motion and bone structures. He actually um, created the Gigantopithecus skull that everybody sees on TV um, using dimensions uh, and uh, mathematics that anthropologists use to kind of figure out what uh, bodies look like. And so, I, you know, it was a cool lecture, but I think the most profound thing about the lecture is he covered, he had a... Um, copy of the Patterson-Gimlin film and he went over that and uh, up until that time you know I was 19 uh, I kind of agreed with my dad that oh it's a guy in a monkey suit but when I left that lecture I I fully believed that was a real animal in that film um, after hearing Krantz talk talk about it so you know after pretty much after that I was very interested in the subject um Life went on, and you know, I I read whatever books came out and watched whatever shows were on TV a bit. Um, and I don't know, around 2011, I was fishing 
I'm in a bass club, and uh, me and I from my club were fishing on Rife Lake in September, and we were on the southern shore, which uh, borders the Gidford Pinchot National Forest. And Rife Lake is near Morton, and as most people know, that's a hot spot in Washington for activity. Um, it's also near Packwood, where me and my dad found the tracks. But we were fishing uh, one afternoon, and and for about 45 minutes, uh, something parallel to this on shore. Uh, and my, my partner, I asked my partner if he heard it, and he he was like, "Oh, it's probably elk." And I just thought it was odd because it sounded like one animal to me. And um, he uh, both were one. You know, it's it's probably elk, but I I kept saying that sounds like one critter. But anyways, we uh, got to a creek, started catching some smallmouth, and fixed that out and then decided we were going to drop the big motor and move. And uh, right about that time, my partner had just told me, he's like, well, you know, there's another guy in uh, our club. His son had seen, reportedly seen a Sasquatch running down the shirt in the same area a couple years prior to this. And he was t- kind of telling me about that, and we were kind of laughing about it. And uh, just before he started that motor, two wood knocks. <laughs> and... You know, that's the first time I ever even thought about a wood knock. And, uh, and I, you know, that stuck in my mind. And, uh, you know, my, you, you asked the guy I was fishing with today, he still laughed about it. He was like, yeah, whatever. And, um, and then in uh, 2013, uh, me and my son uh, decided to, well, my son wanted to go camping. He was 13 years old, and it was his spring break. Um been hounding me all winter and we actually that was probably our last cold winter we still had a good amount of snow up in the hills uh around springtime and it was april april 5th um it was raining over here and i said well we'll go camping we'll head east and we headed up 14 and we actually just we stopped at the skamania county campground there it's right on uh Right off Highway 14, there's maybe 10 acres of forest right there. It's right on the Columbia River. And that campground's closed from October 31st through April 1st. So we were pretty much the first people there. We're the only people there. Um, We set up camp right on the river and did a little exploring. There was a trail that ran up up the river on the shore. And um, we walked back up that trail from our camp and you could see where somebody had come down the bank towards the shore. Um, there's some slide tracks and then there was one track in the middle and they're pretty, they're old tracks, but in pretty degraded, but one in the middle that you can make out and it was pretty big. And, and, uh, and my son had jokingly said, Oh, Bigfoot dad. Cause it was, it was a large track. And I, I kind of laughed. I actually, I took a picture of it and we followed that back up into the timber and it ran into another trail that went back, goes back to the campground. And we got in the timber and I noticed there was all these uh, freshwater clamshells back along this trail. And they're all just fried open. They weren't chewed on, um, you know, and they were in the timber, which I took note of because, you know, the crows, the raccoons, otter, you know, there's a number of animals that eat the freshwater clams on the Columbia, clams on the Columbia, and they're, usually you find them cracked and chewed up or broken down by shore, and you don't find them just open and cleaned out in the timber. So I kind of took note of that, and 
as we got closer to our camp, we kind of came around a little bend in the trail, and there was a fresh limb twist. Um, it was a vine maple that had been twist broke and pushed behind a fir tree. It was about six feet up. Um, and, you know, I looked at that and, and was like, wow, that's pretty cool. Um, could, human could have done it. And then we just kind of started really looking around, and right under that limb twist, the the ground was uh, mainly uh, fir needles and leaves and stuff, but there was a very fresh uh, impression right below that limb twist that measured 18 inches by 9 inches, and you could see kind of toes in it. Um, and then there were some other trees that were knocked down, a little fir tree that had a three-inch base on it, maybe 20-foot tall. It was just pushed over some other older trees that were broken. And, and me and my kid got kind of excited. We were like, wow. And um, we actually we we looked very closely on our way back to camp, and we found another impression that measured about the same in the leaves that kind of went off the trail. It was 18 by 9 inches. And, I mean, they're ambiguous. They're impressions in the ground, but they're shaped like a foot. And, and so we were we were excited about it. Um, we got back to camp. It was the afternoon. Uh, we went fishing for a bit, came back, uh, roasted hot dogs. Got it. Kind of was a nice day. It was over most of the day, and it kind of started sprinkling. So I'd put up tarps. I had two tarps tied between trees over our tent, and um, my son went to bed around 9:30. And of course, it's dark. We're the only ones in the campground, and um, I started thinking about what we found and I will fully admit I started getting creeped out um and I went to bed about an hour, hour after my son who was he's one of those kids he will lay down and fall asleep anywhere instantly we actually climbed St. Helens uh, about a month ago and he took a nap at the top of freaking St. Helens while we were waiting for a buddy to summit but um he was snoring and I don't know at what at one point in the night I awoke to movement around our camp and um, I was instantly uh, afraid and afraid more than I've ever been and I was armed I had a 44 pistol with me but I I couldn't get myself to uh, peek out of the tent um, and I just I heard branch breaking and I don't know how long I laid there I started to kind of drift off and then something pulled on those tarps above my tent. And I, I sat up and I, I cursed and woke up my son. And, you know, I told him to go back to sleep, and which he did. And I wasn't going back to sleep after that. And it was very quiet for quite a while. And I don't know how much time passed, but it happened again. And this time I hit the panic button on my Jeep and it set off the horn and the lights. Um Woke my son up again, told him it was nothing. I hit the button by accident, and, you know, he went back to sleep. And I pretty much laid there uh, for the rest of the night. I'd hear movement around the camp every so often. I heard some splashing down by the water. Um, about at one point I did finally, I looked at my cell phone. It was uh, around 4 o'clock in the morning. And uh, about that time I heard two wood knocks very close to our our tent and then after that uh that feeling of absolute fear that i had pretty much dissipated and i got out of the tent built up a fire and i waited for my son to wake up and uh i told him what had transpired 
the night before, and he's like, I don't really want to spend the night here again, Dad. And I'm like, we're not. And we packed up and we left. But uh, after that, I was pretty much convinced that there's there's something out there, and I want to look for it. And that's kind of what it, that's what's led me to where I'm at now. So yeah, I, I, sorry, sorry if I rambled on. <laughs> I mean, oh no, probably, no, you know what? Uh, you know, as far as uh, the show goes, that's what we want. We want guests to, you know, that's why you can guests are invited onto the show. Uh, they don't. People don't want to hear from us. They want to hear from the guests. So no. <laughs> I was just gonna say that. Yeah, people yeah. call don't the, people don't call them or listen to Monster X to listen to Shane and I run on. But. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, it's uh, I uh, I about this time last year I went to um I went through a divorce in 2014 and uh it was actually oh about. Uh, August 2014, I I started hiking a lot. I devoted a lot of time to hiking, and I hiked all over different areas up the gorge in Skamini County and the uh, what would be like uh, Lava Canyon and over by the Ape Caves and stuff. Um, and I'd actually gotten to a point by January. I was like, "There's nothing out there," because <laughs> you know. But I didn't realize, you know, in the back of my mind, well, I'm hiking where everybody else hikes there's usually a lot of people where I was hiking and um, around February, I I got laid off at the end of February and we had such a mild winter last year. It was like in the fifties. I mean, there was no snow up by St. Helens and um, at the end of February, there's an area up uh, Cuda river that I know where the elk winter and I was going to go check it out for antler sheds figured maybe they start shedding a little early because of the weather and um on top of it i had in the back of my mind well if i if i was a large predator i'd probably be around uh, the elk so i went down this uh went into this area by myself and at the end of february and i found uh uh x structure i guess you'd call it just two trees that were deliberately put between some living trees and um, that's how I found my spot, and I just started um, hiking around that area pretty much every week, multiple times a week for the last year. Um, started doing some overnight recording in March, and uh, it was uh, about the end of March that I actually got something other than known animals that interested me. It was a really large wood knock, and, um, and it happened about 7 o'clock in the evening, and actually, on my recorder, you hear uh, some elk doing some location chirping, and then it goes quiet, and then there's a. It sounds like someone takes a baseball bat to a tree, <laughs> and that yeah. was my first. That was my first indication that I might have found an area that had activity. So. Right. Yeah. And it's just, so in, Chris, in regards to the. Uh, you know this this X formation. You know, I mean, obviously you're not going to jump out and say, "Oh, Sasquatch did that." No, but it, was there anything uh, prior or since um, you you noticed that that you know stick X formation? Is there anything else that you could uh, report oh, about yeah. that? Uh, anything new? Um, Has there been anything abnormal found around that area? Yeah, I, I can. Um, what's happened is basically, you know, I started doing recordings and I'm picking up some unusual stuff on the recordings. Um, and around April, into April, the elk really started moving into the area and hanging out into the area. I have a, At that point, I had one game camera up there, and I was starting to get a lot of pictures of the elk on that game camera. 
And I actually was recording at that point, I was recording close to where that first X structure I found was. And I actually caught at 6.30 in the morning, well, I put it out um, just for an overnight on a Saturday. And when I went back in Sunday to pick it up, as I walked by the X structure, one of the logs was broken. And the way it was set up, it's not like a, I mean, it was not like an animal could have run through and just hit the log and broke it. You would have had to put some force on it to break this log. And I actually, when I listened to that overnight recorder at 6.30 in the morning, uh, you hear this, you hear this, the branches shaking and then you hear crack. You, and I'm, I'm, I don't know if it's it, but I'm assuming because it was close enough to it that that was the X structure being broken. And I would, I was about 45 minutes after that, I had picked up uh, two wood knocks that I find suspect. Um, that that was April, and then some other stuff happened that I'm sure we'll talk about. But as far as X structures go, in in June, I think it was June 6th, uh, I'd taken Barbara Alvera with me up there, and uh, we walked into an area where we have, I have the let me back up. Also in April, we started finding um, elk skulls in trees. Uh, the first couple we found, we just wrote it off as other people hiking around the area being smart. The problem is we, the third one we found, or actually it was the second one we found, really was in an area that uh, I I'm, I'm, have a hard time believing there was other people walking into and then we found a third one, and then we found a fourth one down in the valley where I, once again, it'd be a stretch that somebody happened to be walking down there like us, doing what we're doing. And then finally in May, we found a fifth one, and it was actually up closer to where I actually park. And all these skulls in these trees are found on marshes or um a water source. And so I told Barbara Alvar about it and um we had met at um actually I went to the Olympic projects uh oh expedition in May and that's where we met and so yeah. she came up in June to check the place out with me and we walked in there. I was gonna show her this fifth X because it was the closest to us. I was gonna show her this skull that's sitting in the tree and we got into it, and me and my partner had been in there, had found it two weeks before this. And uh, we came in, and there was a brand-new X structure there. It wasn't there when me and my partner were there. And it's uh-huh. um, just like the original X structure that I found, but it was it been recently done. It had been done in that two-week time frame, um, which found odd. Uh, I actually uh, I took, I think it was the next week, and I took uh, Todd Neese and... Uh, his wife in and uh Diane, yeah. they the, yeah Diane and they we were pictures of the skull and tree and uh, the week after that I went in by myself and that skull had been taken out of the tree <laughs> wasn't taken out by me I don't know who did it um and uh, after that you know I went down into the other marsh which is probably about two miles away where there's a skull that was actually stuck on a stick and this stick was stuck in the ground. Um, and we, me and my partner went down into that area and that had been knocked down. So, And we found um, bone piles 
especially in March, we found a lot of bone piles because uh, you don't have a lot of the ground cover, so you can see better. But these bone piles are unusual just in the fact that the almost the entire animal is there. They're not spread out. Um, I found one bone pile that actually has a, a cow skull and a calf skull with it, so you have two animals piled up. And they're all always around these marshes. So I'm not, I'm not saying that it's Sasquatch, but, you right. know, it's it's unusual. So, yeah, Crit, uh, uh, in regards to the skulls, though, I've got a few questions for you just because it's an interesting subject. You know, you have – you're finding these skulls in this area. So either it, – it, you know, it almost screams that it's, it's uh, you know, the same person or entity that's doing it because you're finding them in the right. close spot. You know, so, it, you know, if it's human, it's the same – It's the chance starts – probably the same person, or if it's a Sasquatch, then there you go. But the yeah, skulls, uh, yeah. any uh, irregularities? I mean, are you, are these skulls, like, any, is there any meat on them? How how old were they in appearance? What was, you know, are they all placed, you know, beside the one on the stick? Whereabouts in the tree are they placed, and how are they placed on the tree? They're all pretty much hanging on them. They're, first off, they're all pretty much bleach white. They're old. There's no okay. skin on them. They're, they're not like recent kills or anything like that. Um, all of them are cow skulls except for one. So there's four cow skulls, and then there's one bull skull. I'm suspect of the bull skull because it's fairly, it's in a tree, but it's fairly low to the ground, and it's not positioned like the others. And I, I'm almost suspect that maybe an, a critter or an animal drug it up into the tree. But the others, uh, the other four are cow skulls, and they're they're placed deliberately placed with a, a you know on a branch so they're on the tree positioned the same way with the nose pointing down and they're all about six foot up. Um, gotcha. The one, the one skull where the uh, uh, the new X structure was was actually there was a a tree that had fallen between two other trees and it was placed on top of that um, between the branches and it was still it was about six feet up. So, but, um, yeah, I, I tried to, yeah, the, I guess there's some differences in all of them. The two of them are pretty, I mean, they're all about six feet up, including the one that was stuck on a stick was stuck in the ground about six feet up. Um, that's all, they're all deliberate. Um, the only one that's, that I'm suspect of that could be a, uh, just a, something where a a bobcat or whatever drug it up in the tree would be the bull skull because it's maybe three and a half feet off the ground and it's in the branches and it's it's kind of cattywampus it doesn't you know it might be delivered it might not be so right but your your general opinion is that something uh picked these up and placed them on on the branch or the tree Oh yeah, definitely. It, with four of them, absolutely, positively, they're deliberately done. Either a human did it or something else. Right. Yeah. So. And that's fascinating. I mean, this scenario, you, you, like you were saying, there's a lot of elk, and you've been tracking elk in this area. I've seen some of your trail cam pictures, and I've seen the elk and and you know the cows and the bulls and whatnot. Um, there's obviously a lot of uh, you know they do come through there, and sometimes for extended periods of time. So it's it's interesting, and you find them near marshes. So there's a water source. Yeah. That's interesting. Yep. That's actually very interesting. But, uh, yeah, yeah. it's uh, a great find. It shows that you're really uh, going out and studying this area. Yeah, it's it's a really neat area, actually. I uh, There's there's six uh, – all, all these marshes are spring-fed. The whole hillside here is – because I'm up on the hill 
I'm not actually in the valley, and uh, the whole hillside is full of these springs. And, uh, you know, like I, I've told my buddies, man, I have elk hunting friends, and I'm like, you know, go on Google Earth and find yourself. You can look at Google Earth and you find a patch of cottonwood and alder, and odds are there's a, there's a spring there or a marsh there, and that's where you want to find an elk. You know, the elk are going to – the elk will – go out of their way for spring-fed water over a creek or a stream or a lake. They'll go to springs. Um, and actually, I have some, several of my game... Ca- I have five game cameras now. And uh, around August, you know, the bulls are getting in the mood and they start creating these wallows. And I, that's where I got... So I have several of the uh, game cameras on these wallows and these marsh areas. And they kind of create these pools and other critters come in and drink out of them now. And so it's, it's cool. Yeah. I, I, I mean, aside from the mystery of, uh, what else could be up there, I enjoy just the wildlife that's up there, you know? Um, Absolutely. I always, yeah, we always run into wildlife. The elk have actually since July have pretty much stayed within a five mile radius of the area that I'm hiking around. I'm not really, since July, I have not been going out exploring like I did before. I've kind of kept to a, a regular route um, and going in and checking the cameras and setting out audio uh, just because I do believe, I mean, my personal opinion is I, I do believe there's uh, Sasquatch in the area. And i just been maintaining this kind of uh, regularity um, because we've had a couple instances where I believe that they were very close to me so mm-hmm. um and in you know in regards to your audio you you collect a lot of audio and you uh you you send you know i know a lot of the audio uh stuff you find fascinating you know you post in in groups and whatnot but you also you know you vet it through david ellis and whatnot but this audio but, you know any of this particular you know any of your recorded audio what sticks out to you uh and what have you recorded multiple times um most recently uh in basically September three weekends in a row I recorded what I call uh bellow or creepy moan um and it's it's uh I record wood knocking a lot um it's been August and September were extremely active um and then you know, recently, two weeks ago, I get those whistling. I had had a whistling um, encounter in May. Me and my partner were actually hiking into the area to pick up my overnight recorder, and something for about a half an hour whistled in the timber close to us, and um, my overnight recorder picked that up. And then I haven't heard, gotten any whistles like that since that event until um, my last recording, uh, something came close to my recorder and was whistling very similarly. And it's not a bird. It's not an elk. Uh, the closest I can say it sounds like a, a human whistle. But right. um, the, the most recent one, the whistles are pretty powerful and pretty long. Um, it, you'd have I can't whistle, and you'd have to be a really have some lungs on you to do the whistles that I recently recorded. That's you know that. I was really excited this last recording just because since the whistling experience in May, I've been like, huh, 
if they're whistling, they've got to do it more than once, dang it. <laughs> so right. um, when it happened again, this last recording, I was like, okay, cool. Now, you know, now I've got something. So um, the event with me and my friend, my partner, when we were up there, we were the only people in there. There's only one way in there. If there's somebody else in there, we would have known. And uh, and it was just odd. It's it really sounded like there was another person down in the in the timber uh, whistling, and uh, it was just it was a weird experience. And we'd actually after we picked up the recorder, we debated: do we go towards the whistles, or do we go the other way? And we decided to go the other way and see if they followed us. And, of course, the whistling completely stopped when we went the other direction. Um, gotcha. So. You know, the sounds like August, August and September are really good months up there. But, you, you know, is this an area you think that uh, they may hunker down in or do they travel through it? Uh, how big an area are we talking about? Well, I, I'm just going into a small area. Um, and for whatever reason, there's pretty much been activity nonstop um, since July. But there, elk have been in there. I mean, I was in there two weekends ago, and the, the elk are still there. I didn't make. I went in there yesterday. Uh, I didn't see elk, but I, every time I've gone in there, there's the elk have been present. We usually run right into them. Um, I'm I'm still up in the air on that. When I first started going up there, I had all these hypotheses that uh, the elk were going to come in and then move on. And what happened is the elk came in, came up out of the valley in April and they basically stayed in the area. And really, I've, I've picked up something on my recorders almost every recording since April. Um, it's 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 part of the whole Toodle River Valley, and I have no doubt that whatever's there is going to utilize that whole valley. Um, right now, there's a lot of hunters up there, uh, and things have gone really quiet, and yeah. for obvious reasons, because the hunters. Um, so I'm sure they move in and out of the area, but I, I'm up in the air. I've I've I'll see what my recordings bring next year when I can compare notes, because I I almost feel like now. Maybe some of these silence that I encountered, you know, March through April was due to us walking around. And now that we've kind of uh, made our presence, uh, non-threatening presence, maybe stuff is, more stuff has happened because they're more comfortable with our presence. I don't know. Um, I, I'm i up in the air on that. I, I, I don't think they necessarily are there year-round, but it sure kind of looks like it right now, if that makes any sense. Yeah. At least they're, um, they, at least they, they're in the general vicinity, it sounds like. You know, if it is indeed Sasquatch, it sounds like they're in the general vicinity. Uh, but, I mean, yeah. if, you had a, if you had a month to, to say you had a month uh, to to spend a month out there, what month would you pick? I mean, with the, the amount of time you've been out there, I know it's, it's kind of short, but um, and you go out there regularly, though. If you had a month, what month would you pick to to hunker down out there? September, definitely. Yeah. Because September, I mean, ridiculous amounts of wood knocks. And, um, you know, Barbara Vera and uh, 
Courtney Hinterland. Courtney is a member of the BFRO. They're kind of become a part of my team. I guess I got a team now. So they've spent the they spent the night twice up there. And uh, the two times they spent the night up there, they didn't hear anything themselves personally. But my recorders picked up some crazy wood knocking when in the mornings when they were leaving camp. And that's also the time frame um, when I got those bellows, the bellowing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, You're yeah, September. Early, early, early morning hours? Yeah, the, the bellows, uh, generally I got them in – I got um, – between 4 and 6 in the morning, and then I also got several bellows in the evening between 10 and midnight. Um, so they're early morning and um, late evening is when I've gotten those bellows. Uh, so, and the wood knocking is generally, it seems uh, anywhere from 3 o'clock to 6 o'clock in the morning, but, I, you know, I've gotten some pretty intense wood knocking all the way up to 11 o'clock in the morning, too, uh-huh. so... Um, yeah. And one of those one of those times was when Barbara and uh, Courtney had been up there. Actually, it was the first time they were up there. There was uh, wood knocking going on um, very close to my recorder. One of the knockers was very, very close to my recorder. But if you listen to it, I count what I believe at least six individuals at different distances from my recorders knocking back and forth to each other. It's fascinating to me what, you know, a lot of people don't realize this. I mean, only those that really go out and and record audio or nature, uh, whether Sasquatch related or not, is how much audio, uh, you know, you know, and not necessarily depending on the audio piece you use. You know, I use Tascams mostly. We use Zooms as well. But how much you don't hear that is actually recorded on audio. I mean, it could be coyotes, for example. There's been times when I've been out there and I've placed audio out there and I've been, you know, a couple hundred yards away from the audio. And it's recorded coyotes oh, yeah. or knocks, and you don't hear it in person, but your your audio picks it up, and you're like, well, I, "How did I not hear that?" I have one clip that's one of my. I I have another friend that's been kind of going with me lately, um, mm-hmm. and he one clip is his favorite. It's actually in. It happened at the end of August. My partner and my son and I were going in to pick up my overnight recorder, and um, and actually, where I main I have one recording area and. Um, I mean, it sounds crazy, but I know I don't try to hide my stuff, and whatever's doing this stuff knows my recorder's there and has gone right up to my recorder. Um, and we were on our way in, and it's actually an area where we found what I believe is a bed, too. Um, but we were on our way in to get that in the morning, and my son, he's 16, and he's rattling away. He's always talking and uh as we're coming in, we didn't hear anything, but when I listened to the recorder that afternoon after we got back, something was right next to the recorder and was and whacked the hell out of a tree. You hear it whack a tree, a stick go flying, hit a branch, and then you hear my voice in the distance. Gotcha. And we didn't hear it when we were up there. It's kind of disturbing. <laughs> <laughs> it can be very disturbing depending on what you recorded especially when it's in close proximity to you and the recorder. You never heard it. I agree. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, we did hear it one time, me and my son. Um, we In September, we went in on uh, a very windy day. It was just me and him. And he there's, uh, there's a main uh, logging gated road that we hike into, and then we take off an old trail to get to this 
recording area. And just as we turn to go on that old trail, it's really windy. And uh, my son had said, Dad, I, I feel sketchy about this. And that my kid is a jokester. He never... He usually when he's up there, he's just kind of oh hum. I gotta go with dad up there, and he was all kind of freaked out. And I t- chalked it up as just the wind, because the wind was kind of scary. And we got down to uh, down to my area, and we're just what you go through a little marsh area, and then you go into the timber where I have a stump that I record off of. And as we were coming into the timber, a, a cow elk, maybe 20 feet from us jumped up and ran straight south of us and uh and that at that point it dawned on me i'm like oh my gosh we're coming in upwind the wind was blowing into our face so this this elk she never heard us and she didn't smell us so we spooked her and she ran straight down south of us and uh four minutes later i get to my recording stump and i'm I'm just setting up my recorder right where that elk had just ran whack whack two loud wood knocks and my kid's like i think it's time to leave dad and uh i'm like well could have been the wind it was not the wind (laughs) two minutes after that whatever it was came within 20 they were within 20 yards of us to our east and they hit another branch against the tree and at that point i'd got the recorder set up and we left i actually yelled we're leaving now and uh yeah that my son's uh He's real quiet when we go in there now. After that, that freaked him out a little bit. <laughs> it was, I mean, definitely not the wind. <laughs> right. So. Any thoughts, Chris, on, you know, you've had, you know, you originally went out there, I guess your partner uh, is male. Uh, any thoughts on having females out there? Do you see increase of noise or activity or anything like that, you know, having, you know, barb and, and whatnot out there? Um, just, you know, just from the two times that they've spent the night up there, it, it, the wood knocking was more intense. Um, mm-hmm. I, I can't, that's another thing that we'll have to see what happens in the future. Me and Barb kind of have some ideas and, um, you know, of having her and Courtney go in just them for a day or us as a group for a day, um. I just know when the, the the two times they spent the night up there, those were some of the most intense recordings for wood knocking that I've had. And some we actually wanted the last night that um they were they spent the night up there, Courtney came down, she lives up in Seattle, she came down before Barb got here. So we went in and placed recorders about five o'clock and it sounds kinda of creepy, but Courtney had brought some uh, urine from one of her pregnant coworkers and we place that near my recorder uh just to see what would happen and um we went back up to the parking area and we waited for barb to get there barb got there and i helped walk them into where they camp and we we don't i have them camp about a half a mile away from where i actually record because where i record is where this where most of the activity has occurred and and so as they were setting up camp, I could have. It was about seven o'clock by that time. I could have sworn that I, I heard a wood knock. And of course, you know, when you're talking with people, there's like you you said earlier, you you, if you're not paying attention, you miss stuff. Well, I thought I heard a wood knock, and sure enough, when I listened to that recording, not only did I hear a wood knock, but that wood knock came from right next to 
the recorder and whatever did it maintain the presence around my recorder most that night um be you know there would be nothing and then all of a sudden crack a, a big break or heavy footsteps um and i've recorded elk and deer i've had elk come by and graze right next to my recorder and there's they make a lot of noise and when they're moving through the woods you'll hear the them the heavy steps from the elk and stuff when they're really moving and these this night the steps were definitely bipedal in my opinion and they were just out of the blue a crack it wasn't like because you can hear the elk as they're getting closer to my recorder and as they get away from the recorder and they're noisy they sound like a herd of cow coming through um but these noises are subtle. I hear a lot of subtle movement, and then uh, you'll hear light, kind of subtle movement, and then all of a sudden, whack, <laughs> whack, <laughs> you know, and and, it, and it's, I don't know. It's either a person doing it or something else with hands. So, anyways. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, have you have you thought about placing, and maybe you've done this, I don't know, and it may be a, a deterrent or not, you know, depending on your outlook, but have you thought about placing uh, a trail cam near where you place the recorder? If, if something's kind of approaching the recorder, you know, and these recorders, they give off, you know, almost all of them yeah. give off, you know, there's a little red light on them. So, you know, you know sometimes, you know, I, I, I bury how I place my recorder. Sometimes I leave them obvious. Sometimes I bury them. I mean, sometimes I hide the red light. But they do give I, off a glow, and if you if you're a nocturnal creature, you can try and hide that glow. You're you know, but for something that you know does hunting at night per se or whatnot, they're probably going to see it. But have you you know with with some of the activity around these recorders, have you tried maybe placing a trail cam around them? Yep. Um, actually, <laughs> what's, I, what's funny is uh, see back in April um, at my the recording after I I got my first wind knock, uh, it was early April, late May, March. I had placed my recorder very near where I do most of my recording now, and um, and like you said, at that time I wasn't using the extra battery pack, so there was just the one red light. But if you use those, I have, have the extra extended battery packs on my Tascams now. If you do that, then it the whole screen is basically lit up the whole time that battery pack is going. And I just left it out because I, I just assumed, well, if they're up here, they're, they, they're watching me leave this stuff anyways. And that recording, I had some interesting stuff happen. I, I recorded a um, a weird, like a moan, but later on in the evening, I think it was around 9.30, out of nowhere, you hear, and it sounds just like a rock hitting the tree next to my recorder, and you hear the rock kind of fall through the branches, and it hits the tree with a lot of force. And when I hear that recording, my first thought is something just threw a rock at the recorder. Um, and after that, I was like, you know what, I'm not even going to try to hide these. I, I, I built a, like a little lean-to over the top of them to keep rain off them, but I don't try to, I really don't try to hide them. Um, and I think it was around June, I decided I need to put a camera on the damn recorder. And I did that for several recordings. And I, I got distant stuff, but the stuff that was happening very near the recording stopped. 
Um, I I don't know. I so I have actually a game camera in the general vicinity of where I record on the main trail that goes into where I record. I have actually three game cameras kind of covering that area where they all move a lot, and I've gotten coyote too. Um, but I don't. I I stopped putting the camera directly on the recording because I like getting stuff that gets close to my recorder, and every time I put the camera on the recorder, nothing comes near my recorder. I don't know why that is. I don't know if I don't know what that means. I don't know what they're seeing. Um, I really liked you guys' show last week. You guys were talking about the game camera thing. Uh, yeah. I don't know if there's something the game cameras put off. I just know my experience when every time I put a, a game camera directly on the the recorder, nothing comes close to it. So I don't I don't know what's up with that. No, it's it's and that's something to know. I mean, it's very interesting. You know, I, I still use trail cameras, uh, so I, I love pictures of nature in general. It doesn't have to be Sasquatch, though. I would love uh, Sasquatch to walk up and you know right. find my my uh, <laughs> trail cam. But it's interesting to note that that that's what you're getting if it's Sasquatch or not. Um, you know, yeah. tra- trail cameras are usually placed on trees. Um, they're usually, you know, even the smallest ones, rather large. Uh, right. And they kind of stick out like a sore thumb. When you place audio, you know, usually lay it flat. Some people put them on trees, you know, bungee cord them. Some people cover them up. They're, they're relatively small, you know. Uh, right. And, you know, maybe, but maybe there is something there. I mean, one would almost assume that there is something there, though there are some you know, some trail cam pictures that I found very interesting, um, you know, I, and that's I why think, I continue to do it, yeah. I, I will say this. I get, and I have cheap cameras because I can't afford uh, the expensive stuff. I've got just your, the basic stealth cam model, and, you know, they take good pictures. I, 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 had a, I have a Bushnell. The elk knock that Bushnell out of the tree all the time. They hear it or smell it or there's something about that Bushnell. They notice it. They don't seem, they pretty much ignore the stealth cams. Um, but I do get a lot of pictures of just the forest. Uh, so there's a delay with those cameras. And sometimes they get triggered, and you don't always catch what triggered them. And I, there's, you know, if I get a lot of pictures, a lot of times, you know, I'll get 10 pictures of just the forest. And this will be in the mornings and in the evenings. And there's been... You know, I've had a couple instances on nights where I was recording where I had a lot of what I thought was activity going on, and I had a lot of nighttime pictures of just the trail and the forest with nothing in it. Mm-hmm. So, Chris, you, you bring you up know. a fantastic point. Uh, one that's not talked about a lot is that your average <clears throat> researcher, hunter, uh, enthusiast, well, let's face it, uh, trail cameras, the really high-end ones are expensive. We're talking... Four hundred plus dollars for one yeah. troll camera, like a reconnaissance. You know what the Linux project uses, and so the cheaper versions. And I use a lot of them. Trust me, <clears throat> it, the, the time delay. You know, I get a, I get the same thing. A lot of pictures of nothing. You know, you yeah. get a lot of pictures of just well something triggered, but what you don't see it. It's it's passed right. by. It's too late. And so <clears throat> for I guess an argument for why don't we have a picture of Sasquatch? Well. I would I venture to say 90% of the trail cameras out there are the cheap ones because, you know, most people are using them just to get a picture of deer that will, you know, kind of trot by or, or eat in front of your trail camera yeah. or whatnot. Yep. But, you know, so the trigger delay is, is um, it's slow, <laughs> and you, you miss a lot yeah. of the action. 
And and it yeah. is really a needle in a haystack. If you have a lot of these expensive ones out there and had the money, maybe perhaps you'd get something more, or at least figure out what's right. triggering those. You know, other than you know, and I'm you know trial by error. You know, when I first started using trail cameras, I put them in everywhere. And guess what? I put them in areas where there's bushes in front of the trail camera. And guess what? Wind blows, triggers the trail yep. camera. <laughs> you know, oh, you I have I have those. I have some great bird pictures too. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I I've, I've gotten pretty good because I've gotten to know the area, and that was that was my goal anyways when I started up there. Is I wanted to get to know the area and animals in the area, and so I've gotten pretty good at picking where I put the cameras now. And I I pretty much regularly get the elk. I can kind of track where they're moving, and what part of the area the elk are in at any given point now. And I plan on getting some more. I'm I probably won't. It'll be a while before I get an expensive camera. The the cheap ones, I look at them as this is how I'm going to track the elk in the other game in the area. And, um, you know, I'd like to have a couple more because I, I have a good idea where, where the elk are going to and from right now. And, you know, I like getting the pictures of the elk. There's a beautiful bull up there. I got Actually, there's four different bulls up there, and there's one really nice one. And, you know, I got some good recordings of him bugling too, which I really like, so... That, yeah. And you know what? That's fantastic. I mean, what you're doing is real research to me because you're really, you know, we can't say definitively, you know, that Sasquatch hunts uh, elk or deer. We hypothesize it being a possible, you know, predator out there. Uh, I, but yet you're tracking the, the possible food sources and you're getting to right. know where they're at at given times, what they're doing. Uh, to me, that's awesome and key, very key if you're trying to find I, this elusive thing. I, I I tend to believe also um, it's n- not necessarily I I believe that if there is a Sasquatch that they're definitely going to be preying on elk and deer that they're just too massive of a creature not to be taking in a high protein source but I also believe that you know look at elk they're huge animals too I think if there's a Sasquatch they probably eat the same stuff the elk do so if the elk are in an area grazing on a certain type of uh, food source, so why wouldn't these guys be doing the same thing? Right. So, you know, that's, that's a great point. We were, um, we were up at our uh, Tillamook site recently, and, you know, now, you know, this time of year it's like chanterelle season. You go out and pick chanterelle stuff. But what we were noticing, a lot of the mushrooms have been eaten. And, of course, you know, my buddy Larry, who's uh, very knowledgeable on the subject of mushrooms and what eats them, you know, we're, you know, squirrels and deer and whatnot, you know, but there's a lot of food sources out there, uh, you know, that uh, we can, we you know, beside, you know, elk and everything else for a predator eat, there's a lot of food sources out there. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Imagine, you know, for something this size, uh, you know, say a Sasquatch, to to uh, to partake in and eat. You know, what are some of the food yeah. sources in this area that, you know, beside the elk, I mean, you got deer and everything else. What else out there would you, you would deem um, edible, um, you know, for a Sasquatch? Yeah, well, these marshes, this marsh areas that I have, there's there's a ton of frogs. I mean, there's freaking you probably in the spring you're stepping on frogs almost. Um, there's a ton of grouse in my area. We flush grouse a lot. Uh, yeah, so there's there's plenty of and squirrels like you mentioned, rodents. I almost every recording there's I have several recording stumps. They're old growth stumps from these old cedar trees because it was a cedar forest at one time that you know the the stumps are cut off you know six feet up so that's what i record on 
there's freaking all kinds. Of, I always have some kind of small animal running around my recorder at night um, yeah. living in these stumps. So there, there's plenty of sources of food, uh, plenty of vegetation. Um, I, I personally have no problem seeing a couple Sasquatch existing in my area. You know, I, I don't have a problem seeing that. Um, and, you know, it's all hypothesis. It's all, it's the type of stuff I think, I think about at, at night when, in, or when I'm up there is, you know, I would imagine that older elk or, um, you know, winter kill elk would be a, a source of food for them also. Um, and the, the elk tend to congregate in the area. They'll, mostly elk, if we get some heavy snow, they go down into the valley, and that's where they congregate, and there's usually quite a few winter kills down there. So, you know, I, w- I would suspect if I was an opportunistic-type uh, predator, omnivore, like a bearer or such, um, I would hang out where there's going to be some opportunity, you know. Yeah. So. Do you, uh, when you're going out to the field, here's here's a couple of questions for you. Uh, is there anything you do on a regular basis? I mean, do you enter the same way and go out the same way? And also, where do you, you know, whereabouts do you place your recorder? Is it low, high, and and same thing in regards to your um, trail cams? Do you, you know, whereabouts do you place those? Um, okay, first, I regularly since July, I go in the same way and usually leave the same way. I'm since activity is slowed. Um, I'm starting to explore more, and the vegetation is starting to die off, so there's not as much ground cover. You can see a little bit further in there now. Um, so I have plans on doing a little more exploration. There's some areas where I I have a feeling that these whatever's I'm recording has been hanging out, and I plan on doing a little more searching in those areas. But basically, when the I, – well, I had an incident in July where um, I – I believe I was roared at, and since then I've just taken to doing um, the same thing every time, going in the same way, leaving the same time, the same way. Um, and I, I even told, I, me and Barb talked about it, I said back in August, I said once the activity slows down again and maybe they've moved on, or maybe the elk have moved out, I'll start going out again like I was doing in March and exploring the area wider. There's areas that I haven't even been in yet that I've looked at on Google Earth that I want to get down in, the areas that I want to place other recorders in and stuff. So, But for now, I was getting the activity, so there was no real reason to go look for activity elsewhere, and so I just decided to maintain a passive, um, regular route in and out, because if they are up there, they know me by now, and they're used to what I do. Um, as far as where I place, I like I said, I put my recorders. There's all these old growth stumps. Um, they're my recorders. I put them up in the middle of those, and I build like a little lean to out of ferns over them to keep the rain off them. And they're probably six feet up. And I I stick them so my speakers are pointing east to west, and uh, and I I can get kind of an idea direct direction. I'm using two recorders now. When I got the money, I'm going to buy a third so I can get a north-south direction on it. But right now, I can tell whether the sound that I'm picking up is further east or further west. Um, I've got a good idea that they're, whether they're further south or further north anyways because of the terrain and what's in there. Um, 
and my trail cams, they're I have them kind of place. I I had have one that's I climbed up in the tree way high up. It hardly ever gets any pictures. Um and I think that's more due to the the sensor is not it just not a lot of stuff is setting off the trigger. I had, I have the majority of them right about head level. Um, and then I have another one that got down low, like knee level on a trail. And actually, I'm going to move one camera. Um, next time I'm up and I got time, I want to move one down to a lower level on a trail and just, yeah, I can maybe if it's down lower, uh, they're not going to notice it as, as quicker. I, I'd love to get a picture of a Sasquatch foot or leg, <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. what, what, what have you, you know? So I, I kind of vary those. Um, so yeah, I'm just kind of just, just, I, I'm, you know, this year has been a total learning experience for me. I have no, I, I plan on being in this area for quite a while and, the only way to really start making uh, real good hypotheses is to record, see what I, you know, I I can't wait till this time next year to see what I've recorded and then compare it to what I recorded this year in, in the time, the weather, what have you and stuff. Yeah, and and to me that is, uh, that's real research. When you can take an area and learn it inside and out and, and, and repeat stuff and look at what's going on in this area. You know, instead of, uh, say, you're, you're an active investigator or researcher, but you just hop around a lot, you may get some, some consistencies and whatnot, but, you know, to, to utilize the area that you're in and study it and realize, you know, what's going on there with just a natural known fauna and whatnot, that to me is key. Uh, Chris, yeah. have, you, have you done... Um, any his, you know historical research on this area? Have you in, interviewed anybody uh, in close proximity to this area that's had encounters, or you know, you got any background on this area? I not not really. You know, I I read uh, I have Kathy Strain's Giants, Cannibals, and Monsters. That's a freaking Fantastic, phenomenal yeah. book, and yeah. uh, there's some great stories from the Puyallup tribe. And the Yakima tribe, both tribes utilized the area I'm in. And what's neat about some of their stories, they talk about some of the things I've encountered, the whistling. Um, the Yakimas in some of their stories are like, if you hear whistling at night, you're in trouble. <laughs> um, <laughs> stick throwing. And the actual the word, I can't pronounce it, but the, the word the Yakimas called these guys were stick throwers or uh, stick stick Indians. And... Um, and we we had an experience in June where we had a what we believe a branch thrown at us, um, and with all the the wood knocking and and the where I've, you can hear sticks being thrown and hitting trees next to my recorder at night, that kind of goes along with the what the Native Americans are talking about. So, you know, uh, other than reading the Native American stories about the area, I. I you know, I know I grew up here, so I know the whole the whole mystique around Mount St. Helens. Um, my aunt, aunt and uncle live in Tootle, and uh, they. <laughs> when I talked to my aunt about this, they, she a couple months ago, her and my mom came over to my house, and I was playing some of the recordings, and her only comment was, "Well, she goes, it's kind of common knowledge to us that they're, they're up there." She didn't extrapolate, <laughs> and I didn't. I didn't dig deep, but it's just it's like 
I'm sure there's people that live up in that area that are like that. They know stuff that happens and just don't talk about it. Um, right. You know, I, I have, I have a friends that I talk to. I, you know, a lot of people I talk to either know somebody that's had an experience or, um, has had an experience themselves and they just don't talk about it. Um, I actually, one of my, a friend of mine just recently saw me. He's always kind of given me a rousing about the Bigfoot thing. He was out hunting, deer hunting a couple of weeks ago and he was sitting on a clear cut and it dawned on him he was hearing wood knocking from two different, and it freaked him out because he never in his life ever thought about the wood knocking thing until he got to know me. And he came, when he saw him, the next time he saw me, he's like, what the hell is a wood knock, Chris? And I, I was like, well, it's, you know, it's a wood knock. It's like someone taking a, a baseball bat to a tree. And he goes, I heard that. I heard it for like an hour going on from two different places on this clear cut. And I go, well, odds are they're talking to each other about you. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, even with Sasquatch, odds are. And one of the fascinating things about what we refer, refer to as, as, at least I consider it that way, uh, as what we refer to as wood knocks is that I have found that in some of the areas that I uh, I, I inhabit and research in, you know, uh, a rock on a tree actually makes uh, the same sound. And sometimes, you know, the rocks are easier to find, are easier to find than, say, a, a stick or a log. Because, you know, it, with some of these knocks, and I've heard them in person, I've heard them with friends uh, in close proximity, where if something was hitting a tree that hard, I would almost assume that the limb or whatever would break, the the branch yeah. or log would break. But a rock, you know, and, and I've mimicked this, I've tried it, experimented. I, a I, rock on a I tree can make the same sound, and it's a lot harder to break a rock, you know. And, you know, what can you do with a rock? Well, you can throw it. It's a lot more, uh, something I, can utilize I abs- a rock a lot more profoundly. Right. I absolutely agree with you. And, in fact, there's... There's a difference in some of the knocks that I get. And um, like a lot of the knocks close to my recorder, you can actually hear the branch break and part of the branch fly off into the other branches. You can hear that whatever is being slammed against the tree break and you kind of hear it tinkle through the branches of the trees. Gotcha. Um, and then like one, my very first wood knock, I call it a wood knock, but it... It's so loud and profound. I almost think that that might have been a rock. And I did in August. There were several recordings where I got what sounded to me like rock clacking, where it was rock yeah. on rock. So, and there's rock up there. There's plenty of rock up there. Um, so, you know, you could. There's a hollow quality to some of the knocks that I get and, mm-hmm. that I, I know is wood on wood. But there's also some knocks I get that I'm. I, I'm pretty sure it's it's a rock against a tree, so yeah. I no, I absolutely agree with you on that. And I've done some experimenting with the knocking thing myself. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I think that some of the communicating that goes on between whoever is doing the knocking, I, I think the longer range ones that I hear more distant, they're more than likely a rock on a tree versus a, a branch on a tree. Yeah, and, and the thing, the reason I bring it up is back in 2011, you know, I had a sighting, and I was with two buddies, and we had two-night experience, and both nights we had what we called wood knocks. But on the second night, we had, you know, very close proxim- in proximity to us, knocks. And these knocks would, 
you could film in your tent. We're talking, you know, right. 30, 30, between 30 and 45 yards away. You could feel the ground. I mean, with whatever was hitting the tree was hitting it so hard. Um, and then, on, like I said, on the second night, a rock came into our camp. So I have to, to hypothesize or at least think about that whatever was hitting the tree with whatever, and this rock came in, that it may have been hitting the tree with a rock and decided to throw it in the camp. Uh, it yeah. was a softball-sized rock. And the trees up there, when I, you know, we tried limbs to mimic it, the rock was the closest. And so yep. um, any, a rock, you know, you know, if you're hunting or what, I mean, in the nature that Sasquatch might, a rock would be the perfect thing to have in your hand. You can carry it around a lot easier. You could hit any tree almost and make a really good sound, whereas you yep. have to find the right size limb and whatnot. So, you know, the wood knocking, I call it rock knocking. I don't know. I, and, and the thing, yeah. too, on it's, that, that two-night experience was we had lots of rock clanking. Sometimes this rock yeah. clanking went on for 20 minutes. I mean, yeah. at least what I assume was rock clanking. I didn't see a Sasquatch, but it was, you know, clank, clank. So it makes sense to me that a rock would be utilized more so than, say, a, a, a stick or a limb or, you know, whatnot. But I can't rule either or out. Right. Right. No, I, I agree with you. And I think I've, I think I've captured examples of both. Um, you know, and, and like I said, I, the one recording that really stands out to me in uh, late March, early April, when I, a rock was thrown at my recorder. That's what it sounds like. And it's definitely a rock hitting a tree right next to my recorder. And it hit it hard. Something was forced through that rock in the middle of the night at my recorder. Um, and so I, yeah, I have, I have no doubt that rocks are, are utilized and not some of the knocks that I get they're so powerful it, it like you said it it would have to be something something other than a branch to create it you know right so. and you know Chris you talked earlier about uh, your experience with with uh, getting involved in this subject you talked about Grover Krantz Grover yep. Krantz uh, is respected by a lot of people. Was a it, definitely a pioneer in this subject. Uh, you know, what are your thoughts of Grover Krantz and how? I mean, did he really help you? Kind of. Uh, I mean, what 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 was your lasting? You know, your impression of Grover Krantz, and do you still look at some of the things that he shared with you in in, in class and whatnot? I mean, because that's fascinating. A lot of people uh, would love to be in your shoes and and been in the same classroom. Yeah, I. <sighs> I was 19. I'm 43 now. I wish back then I had tape recorded that lecture, but I didn't know who he was. To be quite honest, he was just a creepy professor. Um, you know, he was very dry. Um, but I see. I I was a history anthropology major, so that's. I was probably one of the only people in the class really paying attention, even on the days he wasn't talking about Sasquatch. Um, right. But uh, he, you know, he really changed because, you know, me and my dad found those tracks, but I kind of followed my dad's, you know, you look up to your dad, and my dad just, he just kind of, like I think a lot of people do, just kind of ignores stuff out in the woods, and it's, it can't be, it just can't be that. When I had that class with Grover, he, he really made it, the idea of Sasquatch come to life for me up to that point. Yeah, I mean, my dad found tracks when I was a little kid, but, you know, my dad might be right. It might have been just a hunter or whatever. I don't remember the tr exactly what the tracks look like. 
But after that class with Grover and the way he explained the Patterson film and the way that animal moved in that film, um, that's when Sasquatch became real for me uh, because of him. And I have my copy. He signed the copy of Big Footprints for me. I I bought a cast from uh, one of uh, Paul Freeman's cast from the Blue Mountains that has some of the dermal ridges on it from him. I paid 10 bucks for it. I went down to his lab and Fantastic. he had all these casts and I got it for 10 bucks. And, and so, you know... And he was the first person uh, up to that point. I never realized that in the Patterson film, there were tracks also taken. And that was another thing about, you know, that he pointed out in that film. It's like, if you've got hoaxers, you got hoaxers that are making a suit and putting breasts on the suit. you got hoaxers that are not only making a suit, they're creating, I, don't, I think there was like 89 or 90 tracks that were end up cast of this animal. And it's just it becomes too complex to be a hoax for me, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, so his, uh, his, the, I wish, like I said, I wish I had a tape recorder and recorded that lecture because I can't remember all of it, but mm-hmm. I remember the general ideas and what I took away from it when I, like I said, when I left that that lecture, I had no doubt in my mind that Patty was a real animal, so. Yeah, and that's, <clears throat> really unique to me, and, and not unique, but fascinating, because <clears throat> Grover Krantz was, um, to me, a true uh, student of the subject, and also a true researcher, and that brings me to my next question with you is, what do you, you know, you're, you're fairly new at this, I mean, I guess at, at least the uh, going out and, and doing your thing, but what is a researcher? You know, we get all, uh, there's so much talk about what is a researcher and what do they bring to the, the field, you know, between, you know, what's an enthusiast and a researcher? You know, sounds to me, Chris, like you are a solid researcher. Uh, and I don't mind using the word researcher because you're researching the subject and you're doing the best you can with what you got, but yet approaching, the, you know, with a scientific mind and not jumping to conclusions. You know, Grover was very much that. And, and so, you know, I think some of what he, you know, you had the joy of being in his classroom. I think it's kind of paid off, and maybe you, you refer back to him. What is a researcher to you? What does it mean? Um, that's a good question. You know, I I started this for just my personal uh, uh, curiosity. Um, and being in contact with you know, the Olympic project and you know I I emailed David Ellis a couple times a week I'm sure he gets <laughs> he gets annoyed with me sometimes but I it's it's become that more important to me to uh to really document what I find and really look at it closely and um it's hard not to jump to conclusions I mean there's the stuff I've found and heard, I, it's it's pretty darn amazing. It is really amazing to me, and I I guess for me, I don't I personally really believe these things exist. Um, I I believe that you know that uh, they they are in my area, but I also now if I'm going to be a researcher, I I gotta be able to show it and take. You know, take the criticism. Um, I just want to document it and and show people what I'm seeing and what I'm hearing, and and hopefully they get something from it. Um, 
and if somebody can use whatever I've recorded or what I've, I've documented in the future, that would be great. Um, yeah. it, for me, it's it's I do this because I love it. I I mean I I I've always been a history and anthropology freak. I love the idea of a mystery. I love um, I love researching stuff. I I love being out in the woods. I love learning about nature. Um, and so this, doing this just falls right into the stuff that I love anyways. So, yeah. um, I don't know if that answers your question, but... Oh, it does. It does wholeheartedly because I think you're, you're going things about, you know, you're doing things the right way, Chris. And, and there's a lot of people like you, uh, that are doing things the right way as citizen scientists. You know, some of the greatest discoveries ever made were by citizen scientists, uh, yep. and, and and people out there actually doing the field work and doing it diligently and honestly without jumping to conclusions as much as we'd like to sometimes, you don't because you know that that's not the end product. That's not the end goal because it, it, what's provided is not good enough. You're you're trying to make it better. Uh, right. Jane Goodall right. is a perfect example. Uh, you know, yeah. as an uncredentialed citizen scientist that went out and just blew people's minds. Uh, and, but, yeah. You know, you're doing things the right way, and uh, there's a lot of people doing that. And I think those people like you, Chris, um, you know, I work with, you know, we're at Limpet Project in the Tillman Force Group. That's what we're, our goal and aim is, and that's what I think science requires, and I think that's what people really are interested in. You know, anybody can tell a story, but, you know, to back it up over long periods of time with solid evidence and solid um, um, field studies and, uh, you know, uh, collaborating with other people, uh, you know, it adds up to a bigger goal and adds up to a lot of solid foundation. And that, I mean, yes. what you're doing is killer, and I really appreciate it. Uh, everything you're doing, I really do, man. Well, I I appreciate you guys too. I mean, I I just I'm just getting to know everybody, and I I'm you know I it excites me when I talk to other researchers and they're they've recorded or heard the same thing I have. That just it's stuff like that that just that's exciting to me. It's like, okay, yeah, we can, I'm here, I'm over here in southwest Washington, you're up in the Olympic Peninsula, or you're up down in the Tillamook Valley, and we're catching some of the same stuff. There's something to that. That's That means there's something going on here. So, I, you know, yeah. it's, it's exciting. It is exciting. You're collaborating. You know, we're all, you know, a good majority of us are collaborating with other people, and we're recording some of the same stuff, having some of the same findings, and uh, that is solid data that can be looked at. You know, we're not talking about a minute area where you get one recording or one finding. It's it's this is happening across the country, and you know, right. the collaboration is key, and it, and, and it's I'm really excited because the, the collaboration is building. Uh, you know, in the early years, I don't think there was a whole lot of collaboration. You know, you had a lot of, uh, you know, <laughs> a lot of dysfunction and opinions, and you still have that now, don't get me wrong. But there's right. starting to be this, think- this movement where there's collaboration. Okay, well, what do you got? What You know, this group's got this, we got this. Let's work together and and share stuff and, and uh, find, you know, uh, commonalities. And I'm seeing I, that now, and I think 2015 moving forward, it's only going to get better. Yeah, and I I agree. And you know, I think um, I, like the Olympic project. I didn't know about the Olympic project till it's, I think about right after me and my son's experience in 2013. And 
that's when I was like, okay, here's a group. They're really doing it kind of the scientific way. And that's the way I think. That's the way I want to be. Um, and I think the, the Olympic Project being out there doing what they do, they've helped people like me who are getting into it take it more seriously and like, hey, let's, it's not just about, you know, you know, making a YouTube video or something. Let's, let's do something with this and, and cooperate and let's find out what's actually going on. You know, um, and I think in the past it's, there's, you know, there's been, like you said, there, there's egos, there's personalities and all that. And there's going to be stuff like that in every subject. And, you know, unfortunately it, it hinders us against the hard science community. Um, so I think with more people doing like what the Olympic project's doing and, and, uh, you guys, I, I, as that grows, I think there's possibility of accomplishing something, um, and maybe getting more people from the scientific community interested in it. So, yeah, no, well said. I, I think, you know, as much as, you know, this subject has been studied for over 50 years, uh, you know, um, both by scientists and not, but I think we're still, honestly, I still think we're in our infancy with with this subject in, in studying and, and trying to figure it out. I really, really do. I think there's new people Absolutely. coming aboard uh, with new ideas, sci- uh, technologies coming to play, and I think some of the endeavors and some of the um, possible findings can be outstanding. And I'm seeing yeah. some of this now. It's It's trickling in. It's getting exciting. Uh, the future yep. to me holds a lot of good things in with people like you, Chris, out there and uh, many other groups out there. There's a lot of other groups and a lot of other individuals um, that don't oh, yeah. share their stuff. But the, the future is exciting. What do you think? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, it, it's changing, and I I think it's, it's going to do nothing but get better, honestly. Um, there's, you know... There's, there's just, I, it's like even just my type, my circle in my life, the people in my life, my friends, my coworkers, they're a lot of part of my little secret page where I post my stuff and people yeah. that really had no interest in the topic at all now, they're interested now because like they listen to my recordings and they're like, oh my God, I've heard that and never really thought about that before. You know, it's, <laughs> I've got friends that they're your I've been out in the woods logging or elk hunting, and I've never seen or heard anything. And then I play a 15-minute clip of wood knocking back and forth. They're like, definitely not a woodpecker. And you know what? I think I've heard that. Um, uh-huh. <clears throat> I, I think as people, you know, I think, you know, the, one of my buddies who used to give me a lot of crap, he's all kind of, he doesn't even know what to think anymore because he thought it was a joke before. He doesn't think it's a joke anymore. So I think more people, you know, we, if we present our stuff properly and in a a rational way, more people are going to be open to looking at it and listening, you know, and, and more people, maybe when they go out in the woods now, when they hear that crashing wood knock, uh, instead of thinking elk right away, well, maybe something else is going on. I, you know, who knows? So, who knows? And I, I, but it's, I, it's, I, think, it's, I, I think there's a lot of eyes in the woods, and I, but I think a lot of the eyes in the woods are not paying attention. Yeah. So. But part of the joy of being out there is just, uh, you know, half, I mean, more than half joy is just being out there in the woods in the wilderness, 
You know, John yep. Muir, the late John Muir, uh, said, "In every walk with uh, with nature, one receives more um, more than they can, you know, more than one seeks. You know, so you receive more by going out there, and you, you know, the, just getting out there is just half the half the fun. And so, hiking uh, with a purpose. <laughs> exactly, hiking with a purpose, but enjoying your surroundings, and that is that yeah. is key to me. But hey, Chris, uh, we're short for time here." Uh, Gunner and I both appreciate you joining us. Uh, real quick, though, I want to give a shout-out to uh, Bigfoot Ground Zero. I know you did an interview with David Halle, uh yeah. a couple months back. Fantastic interview. And Bigfoot Ground Zero, folks, is a great uh, podcast to listen to. Um, he's given us a shout-out, but I'm not doing this for, you know, tip for tat. Fantastic show to listen to. And David really puts on a great show. And he had Chris on there recently. Oh, yeah. If you haven't heard it, listen to it, because you, you'll hear some tidbits that you did not hear here. Yeah, David. David's become one of my good friends. I talk a, to him he's quite awesome regularly, guy, and I too. just got to give yeah. him a shout out. He does a fantastic job, and he's an honest guy. But uh, Chris, so yep. we're short for time here. I appreciate you joining us uh, this evening, and uh, look forward to your future results, and uh, hopefully have you back on the show uh, shortly. Yeah, no, yeah, definitely, and I will see you guys at Sasquatch Summit. Sasquatch Summit. That's All right. right, Chris. Thanks, uh, buddy. Right on. Yeah, thank you. Have a great night. Thanks all for joining us here on Monster X Radio. Uh, we'll see you again next week. Uh, we got a lot of fun things coming up here, and hope you stay tuned. Uh, and uh, look forward to uh, having you guys all listen to us again. And thank you so much for joining us. Have a great evening. Mm-hmm.